Well, good evening. We'll go ahead and get started. I know people are still coming in. Just make yourself comfortable. Let me uh, say a prayer and we'll get started. Lord, thank you for this evening. Grateful for uh, calmer weather. Uh, very mindful, though, of those who've lost homes and just some tragedies. And I pray for your strength and your, your healing for those families. We're grateful to be able to come together tonight, study your word, and I pray you bless this time. Pour your words into our heart and help us to take them from this place and follow you more closely in Christ's name. Amen. Well, you guys know the drill by now. That's the number to text your questions during class. I think it's on your handout as well. We are going to talk about Revelation chapter 11 and 12. Revelation chapter 11, I'm not saying it's the most important piece of the book of Revelation in terms of the crux. It doesn't get a lot of excitement, but it's probably one of the, of the chapters that has the most different interpretations. And I'll give you just a few to consider and think about, but it's, there's a lot of disagreement about what's actually going on here. So I thought I'd give you a recap of, of what's going to happen, just a brief recap and tell you how each of the views basically looks at it, and then we'll dive in and start getting into the symbols themselves and into the details. But at the beginning, this is our familiar chart, so I won't go over it again, but just to remind you, these are the four major ways of viewing the book of Revelation. They're all orthodox Christian ways of looking at it. Some are right, some are wrong. My point is not that they're all right. My point is that they're all trying, sincerely trying to understand basically the question of when are these visions happening. And so as we look at chapter 11 and 12, here's basically what's going to happen. It's going to open with a, John seeing this vision and being told to go measure the temple that he sees. And there are going to be these two witnesses that come onto the scene, and they're going to have an adventure for 1,260 days. And then the scene is going to shift to heaven, from, from the witnesses on the earth to heaven. And you're going to see a woman about to give birth and a great red dragon. And the dragon is going to pursue the woman and try to destroy this woman. And then there's going to be war, rebellion in heaven between Satan and his angels and Michael and his angels. That's kind of what's happening here. And let me just give you a recap of how these different views understand these clearly, these visions that are very symbolic and what do they think they mean? When do they th really think they're happening? The preterist view thinks that most of this book is about the fall of Jerusalem basically in 70 AD. So they're gonna understand these events as also about the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Historicist view, if you remember, that's basically the view that what's happening between chapter 4 and chapter 19, we're kind of right in the middle of chapter 11, is really kind of a roadmap of all of church history from the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ. So we're in it right now. And that it's linear in that chapter 10 happens before chapter 11, although chapter 12 is going to be a flashback, but basically it's very linear. And one thing happens after another. And so they believe, the historicist view believes, that this, what's happening here with these witnesses and the measuring of the temple and the 1,260 days are the time period in history where the Roman Catholic Church, the papacy or papal Rome, were basically ruled the church from about 300 A.D., which is about where we left off in our last lesson, to the Protestant Reformation, say Martin Luther in 1517. 
So for 1,260 years, that that's what's happening here, and that these two witnesses are the, inside the Catholic Church through all that time, there were people who were held on to the true faith. The historicist view was very popular among the Protestant reformers, Martin Luther, John Calvin, and so they tended to understand this as talking about the Catholic Church being off track. And I'll talk to you more about that in our next lesson, but they're going to look at this and they're going to say the two witnesses are the faithful church trying to tell uh, the truth and the Catholic Church is the dragon who's trying to suppress it, really the papal system. Uh, the woman and the dragon are a flashback to uh, the church being persecuted by Rome. So futurists say, no, this isn't about talking to you about what's happening in the past, the Protestant Reformation. Futurists say all of this, chapter 4 through 19, is happening in a seven-year period in the future called the Tribulation. They will understand is what's happening here is literally the middle of the tribulation, three and a half years into the tribulation. Many futurists, particularly of the flavor that are called dispensational futurists, understand the measuring of the temple you're about to see as building a new temple in Jerusalem, like it's going to happen in that seven-year period, and that the uh, witnesses are preachers during that tribulation, and the woman is Israel, and Satan trying to destroy the nation of Israel, that that's all happening in that seven-year period. That's consistent with the futurists seeing most of these visions as either supernatural events in that seven-year period or war, nuclear war happening as the world tries to destroy Israel. The symbolic view is going to look at the measuring as kind of God sealing his people and the 1,260 days as symbolic of this entire church era in other words, these kinds of things, Satan has pursued God's people over and over and over, that the woman is the church and the dragon is Satan trying to stop what the church is doing and that you are the witnesses. You're the ones out there with the gospel. So that's kind of an overview of these couple of chapters and how the different views see it. They have a different view of when and they also have, some have a more symbolic, others have a more concrete understanding if that makes sense, okay? So that's chapter 11 and 12. Let's dive in and let's take a look at the specifics of this and how the different views want to look at it. He begins, John says, he's in between the sixth and seventh trumpet. Remember we had seven seals and bad things happen. We've had six trumpets and bad things have happened. But like in the first set, there's a little pause between the sixth and seventh uh, event And this is what happens. He said, I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and I was told, go and measure the temple of God in the altar and count the worshipers there. But exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it's been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. For those of you making notes, you're going to see a flashback of this idea of measuring the temple in Ezekiel chapter 40 through about chapter 48, and there an angel is measuring the temple. And in fact, you see a lot of Old Testament prophecy, you've seen it from a lot of places, and we're going to look at Daniel in some detail in just a minute, being pulled into Revelation. So it's grabbing those prophetic ideas and reusing them. So he's measuring the temple, which is something they've seen before. The 42 months, I want to talk to you about this because you're going to see it in three different forms. 42 months, which is three and a half years, You'll also see three and a half years. 
which is the same as 1,260 days. Now you're going to say, well, Terry, wait a minute. Three and a half years is a little bit more than 1,260 days. Not in the Jewish calendar. Jewish calendar is a lunar calendar. Every month has 30 days. They have a year of 360 days. And they have to, on regular intervals, add a month occasionally to sort of true it up because we know there are 365 days in the year. But Jews, the Jewish calendar has 360 days in the year. So that's three and a half of those is 1,260. So 42 months, 1,260, three and a half years is a really common number. So he's told to measure this temple, and because the Gentiles are going to trample on this temple for three and a half years. Well, how do people understand it? The historical and the spiritual view are going to understand the temple as God's people. Historical say the temple, those are the really true Christians during the whole papal reign uh, between, again, about 300 to the Protestant Reformation, the true Christians who are holding true to the Bible. Spiritual view, the symbolic view, is going to say that's just Christians of all time who are being true. And the idea of measuring the temple is God marking his people. You saw that once before. Remember when God stopped everything and he said, put the seal of God on the forehead of his people. Well, it's happening again. Well, from a symbolic point of view, actually, this is telling the same story three times. We had seven seals and we marked the believers. We've got seven trumpets and we're measuring, marking the believers. You're going to see it again when we get to the seven bowls. The symbolic view says, this isn't telling you a long, long, long string of events. This is beautiful literary and prophetic mechanism. Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls are seven being the, complete, the number of completeness. That's just telling you this is God's complete judgment. And they're just telling the story three different times. So they would see the sealing as the same thing that happened back during the uh, opening up the seals, as God marking the believers. Now, futurists understand this really differently because they're going to say, no, nah, there's nothing symbolic about this. This temple is going to exist. That in the seven years of the tribulation, as unbelievable as it seems, God is going to protect the believers, or some uh, futurists would say, no, this is now talking about Israel. Why Israel? Because some futurists say the church has been raptured. Remember, back at the beginning of the tribulation. Well, if the church is gone, not all futurists believe that, but if they're gone, then this is Israel. These are Jews. And that hard as it is to believe, the Antichrist is going to politically make it possible to rebuild the temple on the Temple Mount. Just one slight problem, there's a Muslim holy site there right now, the Dome of the Rock. But futurists believe that the Antichrist will be a political figure who is so good that he's able to make it possible to rebuild the Jewish temple. And that in the first half of that seven-year period, the first three and a half years, Jews will offer sacrifice. They're going to go worship in the temple. Then the Antichrist is going to turn on them, and he's going to just defame the temple. I mean, he's going to desecrate the temple in the second three and a half years. So futurists see this in a more concrete way. They say this is a sign that the temple itself is going to be rebuilt. This is probably a good time just to focus in on the futurist view for a moment and tell you kind of how they see this whole idea of the temple and why they have this really fixed idea of seven years at the end of time. 
So I want to talk to you about a prophecy from the book of Daniel. This is called Daniel's 70 Weeks. This is a prophecy, and I'll just read it to you. And uh, I want you to, as we go through this, though, there's a prophetic idea called a day for a year. Remember the historicist said the 1,260 days were actually a 1,260-year time span? That's not that unusual. Almost everybody understands this prophecy that's talking about 70 weeks. So that's 70 sets of seven days. So we're talking about a period of 490 days. Most commentators understand this prophetic mechanism is, no, he's actually talking about 490 years. So listen in this sense and see what he's saying. Daniel says this, 70 sevens or 70 weeks are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin. In other words, to the end times, to this book of Revelation. This is a futures view. To bring in everlasting righteousness, so the second coming of Christ, seal up vision and prophecy to anoint the most holy. Know and understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem... Until the anointed one, that word anointed one is Moshiach. It also means Messiah. So most of the futurists are going to say, so there's a timeline here. From the decree to rebuild Jerusalem, which has been destroyed, by the way, in Daniel's time, by the Babylonians, till the coming of the Messiah, he says there will be uh, seven sevens and 62 sevens. So 69 of those weeks. 483 of those years, basically, will occur in that time frame in history. And let me just pause and tell you, I'm not going to show you the math on this, but, but basically you can work this out so that from the issuance of the decree by Artaxerxes that Jerusalem could be rebuilt okay, in the 5th century B.C. to the time of Jesus Christ, you can work that out to be basically 483 years. And so futurists are going to say that part of the prophecy happened after Daniel's time. I mean, between Daniel and Jesus. But there's a little piece of it that isn't accounted for. He says the anointed one will be cut off and have nothing. So they take that to be the crucifixion of Jesus. Now the people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary the end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. He, this ruler, now the future say, we've shifted into this, to the future. Now we're into this seven-year period in the future. This ruler, the Antichrist, he will confirm a covenant with many for one seventh. He's going to make a covenant with Israel for seven years. This is how the futurists understand this prophecy, for seven years. But in the middle of the seven, three and a half years in, he's going to... Go back on his word. He will put an end to sacrifice and offering, and a wing of the temple he'll set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. So a couple of things just to pull out of this. So they understand this prophecy, one of those weeks, seven days, which equals seven years, hasn't happened. It's into the future. And there's going to be this ruler, Antichrist, whom you will meet in person next week here on this stage. Now, we're going to talk about him in the book. But Antichrist is coming. He's going to be, appear to be a friend of Israel. So when you look at this chapter 11, you say, yeah, he's going to arrange for them to actually rebuild their temple. 
because it mentions a temple in here. But halfway through, he's going to turn on Israel, and then he's going to desecrate that very temple. But if that's going to happen, a temple needs to be rebuilt. So many futurists think that one of the ways you can tell we're in the tribulation is the temple's going to get rebuilt in Jerusalem, and that, that this prophecy is finishing off that piece of prophecy in Daniel. Is that clear? Clear as mud? Okay. Well, the that's kind of a futurist view of tying together those prophecies. And that's where you get the idea of the tribulation being seven years. That's where you get the idea of understanding this measuring the temple is actually building the temple. So I just wanted you to see the connection there and how futurists put those things together. Question? The preterist view sees, um, this goes back to what we were talking about in Revelation, not in Daniel. But the preterist view sees this as the literal fall of Jerusalem by the, the Romans. This whole area, yeah, this, yes. this whole stretch. If that is true, why would John use such cryptic and symbolic language to describe a literal military conquest? Yeah, good question. Two reasons, I'll give you the short version because probably not that many preterists in the audience, but good question. Two, two possible reasons. Number one, because he's writing in an apocalyptic genre. In other words, this is a prophetic, apocalyptic style, like parts of Ezekiel, like parts of Daniel. He's, it's like trying, you decide to write a poem or you decide to write a novel. I mean, you can say the same thing, kind of, but you've got to pick how are you going to write it. This is how prophetic images are often written, and so this was the manner. Second reason is to keep the Romans from uh, finding out that he's bad-mouthing them. Because if, if you think of the bad guys in here being the Roman emperors, it's probably not something you want posted on the internet, you know, if you're John, because they come find you and lock you up. Oh, wait, they already did that, didn't they? But anyway, so that's the other reason, is to make it cryptic for the Romans, but make it in a symbolic language that Jews are kind of used to reading this kind of thing. So those are the reasons that are often given. Going back to the two witnesses. Which we're about to go to, Yes. Okay. I'm, I'm, we're gonna, I'm gonna introduce you to them next. Do you wanna wait? Yeah, that'd probably be better, because okay. I'll tell you the difference. I have two questions on that. Okay. And then I have another question on this, if you okay. wanna do that now, on this passage from Daniel. Do, do the other methods of interpretation see this passage differently? Yes, the other schools of thought understand this to not be related to the end times in Revelation. That's, that's correct. Futurists understand Daniel and Revelation, just like this, and the 70th week is a seven-year tribulation. The symbolic doesn't even understand the tribulation to be seven years. They understand the tribulation to be this whole church age. I mean, we're in a tribulation. We're being pursued by Satan. So they do not see that connection. They understand that being fulfilled in another way. I mean, it's not that they don't think that the Daniel passage is true. Don't misunderstand me. They just don't think it's referring to this. Same with the historicists. Good question. They will see this uh, prophecy differently. Well, let's look at the witnesses then. After he measures the temple, either protecting the people or, if you're a futurist, we're going to build a temple in the future. He says this, I'll give power to my two witnesses. They'll prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. These men have power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they're prophesying, this three and a half years, and they have the power to turn water into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Interesting guys. 
The olive tree, the lampstand, this is Jen, just for those of you who want to see the connections to Old Testament prophecy. Zechariah, that's with an E, not like his cousin Zechariah. This is Zechariah chapter 4. You'll see the symbology behind these two. So I, I, I want to tell you this without going into a lot of details, just to give you the idea that these symbols, these ideas, very familiar to Jews, very familiar to Christians who come from that Jewish heritage. These are things that can be decoded. But basically, the olive tree and the lampstand stood for a guy named Zerubbabel, who was a political leader, and a guy named Joshua, who was a high priest, and they teamed up together to rebuild the temple. And so that's the symbology there. The other interesting symbol about these two witnesses, because everybody asks, who are the two witnesses? I mean, who are these uh, people? Interesting clue. You notice they have interesting power. They have the power to make it not rain, and who had that power in the Old Testament for about a three-year period? Think Elijah, the prophet, goes to Ahab and says, God said it's not going to rain till he says so. And Ahab says, well, no problem, I'll kill you. And you know, they have the whole big you know, prophets of Baal thing. So it's really reminiscent of Elijah. Also, in Malachi, it said that Elijah would come before Christ. In other words, he would come again. Christ said that was John the Baptist, but still, people look at it and go, man, this sounds like either Elijah, literally, or an Elijah-like prophet. Second guy, he has the ability to turn water into blood and bring down all different kinds of plagues. Who's that sound like? Moses, yeah, and the Exodus story. We notice that there are a lot of Exodus motifs into Revelation. You see all the, the visual images that are being drawn on here. And you go, okay, this may be literally Elijah and Moses coming back. And there's some who believe that. Some in the early church believe that. Others say they're using these images to tell you these are going to be two great prophets like Elijah and Moses. So whether you take it really concretely or not, you, you see the symbology telling you these are two prophets of God, really powerful prophets of God. So everybody would agree uh, with that particular point of view, that these two witnesses are prophets of God. Maybe Elijah, Moses, maybe Elijah and Enoch, different story uh, for another time. But basically, these two witnesses are going to come. Now, let me finish what they do, and then I'll tell you how each of you thinks who they really are. Now, when they have finished their testimony, and by the way, that's kind of an important little phrase, because you're going to see them get killed by the powers of evil, and you're going to go, how could good guys, how does God let evil kill his people. That's the key thing. God allows this to happen because it doesn't happen until they have finished their testimony. So they finish their testimony. The beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified, Jerusalem. For three and a half days, men from every people, tribe, language, and nation, people, tribe, language, and nation, what does four stand for? Whole world, created world. A whole world is going to look at them for that time period. They will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets who had tormented those who live on the earth. But after three and a half days... A breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up, and everybody was scared to death. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here, and they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. Fascinating little story, right? Of The two witnesses come down, a prophecy to the world, and people hated them. They didn't want to hear it. 
end up killing them after the three and a half years, leave their bodies lying there. So who are these uh, people? Historicists say these are the true believers. I'm going to focus on the historicists for a minute. So anybody who grew up Catholic just wants you to know, historicists did not like the papal system. And so they understood it to be a force really opposed to God. And so that's going to color the way they understand this. They'll understand those two witnesses. Remember I told you historicists think this is happening around the Protestant Reformation. They understand that to be all those true believers who spoke against the Catholic Church. Interesting thing, in the Third Lateran Council in 1179, basically said heretics, uh, condemned all the heretics, and the Catholic Church began a program of suppressing heretics. In 1231, you have the Inquisitions, where people get tortured to uh, basically repent. They get killed. So the Catholic Church is killing some people who are heretics during this time period. And they're going to understand that's what's happening here. The Catholic Church at that time, the popes at that time, also forbade heretics to be buried. In other words, once they were killed, them, they did not give them a Christian burial. And so they'll see this as they killed the witnesses and they left them there and they didn't even bury them. Uh, so I'm trying to give you a feel for why historicists understand and how they track this together. <clears throat> the resurrection of those two witnesses, they thought they were dead, now they're alive, is thought to be the Protestant Reformation. And in fact, there's an interesting little chronology they put together here. Remember the three and a half days that they laid there and that looked like they were dead? Translate that into three and a half years. And here's some interesting chronology. On May 5th, 1514, Pope Leo decreed victory over the heretics. In other words, there are no more heretics, no more rebellion against the Catholic Church. On October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nails up the complaints, right? The protests. That is three years, 180 days later. Historicists are going to say it looked like the true believers were dead for three and a half days, but then they, they miraculously come to life. And sure enough, 1517, Luther you know, sparks the Protestant Reformation, and boom. So if you're, if you're a historicist, if you're Luther or Calvin, you're going to understand this tracks well, and you're going to cast the papal Rome as kind of the, the non-true believers. But that's how the historicist view understands the witnesses, and that's a big deal to them. They understand this is a significant event, the Protestant Reformation. Futurists, very concrete. These are two literal people in the middle of the tribulation. And they're going to prophesy for that last three and a half years of the tribulation. And literally three and a half years, they're going to get killed. They're going to lie in the street for three and a half days, and it's going to be all over CNN. And they're literally going to be raised from the dead and go to heaven. So in other words, they want to take it in a real concrete way, and it's happening in the future. And that's, a, that's kind of a typical futurist view. They are preachers who are converting people during the tribulation. And then the symbolic view just says this is all about the church throughout history. It's not a specific time. God's witnesses have given up their lives many times. And the fact, though, this idea of them being they look like they're dead and they were raised is the promise of God that the world might kill your body, but nothing can harm your soul. Does that make sense? So they would take that as that reassurance. So that's how the views tend to want to view the, the witnesses, either the Protestants, two real people in the future, or 
just you and me, witnesses in the church and martyrs throughout the entire church age. Question? Um, yes. Is it possible that the two witnesses are the Old and New Testament? Two witnesses of the Old and New Testament. Possibly. Let me give you one other twist. Hadn't thought to mention it, but I will because it's interesting and this sparks it. Think about the uh, transfiguration. If you remember this event, if you don't, that's okay. This isn't a trivia question. But basically in the life of Jesus, some of his disciples are with him. He goes on the thing and, and he become, they begin to see, whoa, this is Jesus in his glory. And Elijah and Moses come and speak with him. Most people think of that because Moses is the law, Elijah is the prophets. And so when the Jews talked about their scriptures, they said the law and the prophets, meaning the prophets God sent and the law he gave, in other words, the Old Testament. So they understood this as Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament. And Moses and Elijah sort of symbolized all that God had done in the Old Testament. So I don't know so much about the Old and New Testament, but it's very common to understand these two witnesses then as being God's people, the people of the book. And futurists are going to understand them as these are Jews and they're converting Jews because all the Christians have been raptured. They're Jews. Symbolic would say the law and the prophets, all of the people of the book, including Christians. That makes sense? So I don't know so much about the Old and New Testament, but certainly the idea of them representing God's people and God's scriptures is, is one way to look at it. And my next question is, if we interpret this to be Moses and Elijah, what's the tie into the transfiguration? Yes, the fact is they're alive and well and they're coming back and they're gonna just inflict some serious pain on the world in the middle of the tribulation and then they will be killed and raised. In other words, literally, Moses and Elijah are coming back. And so they see Jesus at his ministry, they're gonna be there right before Jesus comes back again. And were they both taken to heaven without earthly death? No, they were not both taken to heaven without earthly death. Moses died, Elijah didn't. But they were both forecast to return again. In Deuteronomy 18.15, there's a passage that says, I will raise up for you one like Moses from among your brethren. Some people want to understand that to say, yep, that's him. That's basically saying Moses is going to come back. Elijah didn't die. But that's why some people want to say instead of Elijah and Moses, it's Elijah and Enoch. Elijah and Enoch are the two guys who didn't die. So you can see why there's kind of a lot of argument about who are these two witnesses. I mean, specifics. They're clearly testifying to God's plan to people in whatever view you're in. But that's, those are some different views. Okay, going back to the temple falling and then being rebuilt. Uh-huh. Um, is that after the rapture and during the seven-year tribulation? The temple being rebuilt, okay, if you're a before the tribulation rapture, futurists, because futurists disagree. Matter of fact, I'm going to show you in just a second when some futurists think the rapture is going to happen after the tribulation in the very next slide. But right now, some futurists say pre-tribulation rapture. Back at chapter 4, Christians, whoosh, you're out of here. All the bad stuff starts happening. Temple gets rebuilt then in that seven-year period. And in the middle of it, the Antichrist turns on Israel. I'll tell you more about that later. So the, the Christians are gone if you're pre-tribulation rapture. If you're not, if you say, no, nah, chapter 4, that's not a rapture. It's not going to happen until something more specific, which I'm about to show you in chapter 11. Then Christians would be here in that time, and they would see the temple being built. 
But futurists do think the temple is going to be rebuilt in that seven-year period. Personally, I'm not knocking the futurist point of view, but I don't even think you can get building codes in seven years and get it built. But that's just me. We're trying to build the satellite church, and my experience tells me you cannot build this thing in three and a half years, but I could be wrong. Well, chapter 11 ends with the seven trumpet then sounding. And this is kind of interesting. I want to highlight this, the symbolic view here. Notice what it says. Okay, after that all happened, the seventh angel sounded his trumpet. And the loud voices in heaven said, and listen to how this sounds like the end of the world, the end of everything. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. The 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and was and is to come, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. Now, it's like, okay, God is reigning now. Everything's done. He's in charge. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead. This sounds like the second coming of Christ. We're going to judge the dead now. And for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your saints, those who revere your name, and for destroying those who destroyed the earth. In other words, we've got a judgment scene here. So let me kind of skip forward. The symbolic view, this is the end of the world. You had something like it with the seventh seal, and you're going to have something like it again with the seventh bowl. In other words, symbolic says, we just told you the whole story of the whole church age. First coming of Christ to second coming, that's the second coming of Christ. Futurists, some futurists are going to say, no, we can't end this thing yet. We've still got seven bowls of wrath. We've got a millennium. We've got all kinds of interesting stuff to happen here. They're going to say, that's a rapture. In other words, church didn't get raptured in chapter 4. Christians are getting raptured now at the end of the seven-year tribulation. That's called post-tribulation rapture. So futurists kind of disagree. Now, if you get a choice, go for the pre-tribulation rapture. Save yourself seven years of horror, right? And it is the more popular view. But I just wanted you to know, some futurists say, no, the church is here through this whole time and then is raptured before Armageddon, before the very, very end. And that's what they say is happening right there. Okay? Yes, ma'am. Can you talk about the idea that um, this type of literature sometimes is not linear, but is circular? Yes, good point. Uh, it, it's not a given that you should read this in a linear fashion. A happened, then B happened, and chapter 3 happened, then chapter 4 happened, then chapter 5. That is not a given in this kind of literature. It's a very good point. Futurists and historicists will read it that way. Historicists are going to say, no, we were talking about Rome last week, now we're talking about the Protestant Reformation, and next week we're going to talk about what happened next. Futurists say, I agree that it's linear, but just not in the past. It's in the future. This happens in the first part of the tribulation, then the second part of the tribulation. That makes sense? Symbolic says, man, you guys, there's nothing linear about this thing at all. This is a so circular. You've got three sets of seven. You're telling the same story three times. It's called recapitulation. By the way, have you ever found yourself, I'm just going to tell this story on myself, have you ever found yourself as you're getting older telling the same joke or the same story for about the 42nd time and your wife or your friends go, you've told this 40 times before. I'm going to, I'm going to help you out here. The technical theological term for that is recapitulation. So you're not getting senile. We're just engaging in the literary style of recapitulation. We're going to tell the same thing over and over, right? That's what they say is happening here. That's a very valid way to read prophecy. But you can see how if you read it as linear or you read it as 
circular, you will understand it differently. So I do want you to understand that wh whichever one of these views you find resonates most with you, I want you to understand they're all sincere views of trying to understand what God is saying. Good question. Hey, let's jump into the second part. Uh, in chapter 12, everybody thinks this is a flashback, all right? So we're flashing back now. So let's just pause with the witnesses lying there dead, if you're a futurist. Let's pause, mid-stroke, Martin Luther hammering up a nail on the door in 1517. And symbolic, you don't have to pause because it's all happened before and it'll all happen again. So we're going to pause. And as you go into chapter 12, everybody understands this is sort of, this is a flashback. This is literally going back to tell you something. In fact, now the futurists are going to see it also in the future. But basically, we're going to see a woman and the dragon. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crowd of 12 stars on her head. Very interesting description. You'll find this exact description in a dream that Joseph had uh, back in... Uh, Genesis chapter 39, and you will see this, uh, this image of the stars, the sun, and he's thinking of Israel. In other words, the nation of Israel that's going to happen. So many are going to understand this woman as Israel, or at least a symbolic Israel. She was pregnant, cried out in pain, she was about to give birth, and another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon. He had seven heads, ten horns, seven crowns on his head. Let me just pause right there. Seven is the number of completeness. Ten is also a number of completeness, in a sense. You've got ten fingers, ten toes, kind of a number of wholeness. So seven heads means he had authority, total authority in the earth. The idea of having ten horns, horns means strength or power. He had a lot of, of power, a lot of military power. Futurists very much see Satan as wielding a lot of military power in the tribulation. And seven crowns on his head. And the crowns, diadems literally, are things you would put on a king. They're symbols of political power, ruler. So full political power. So this dragon, nobody, by the way, nobody thinks it's a dragon. Right? Everybody understands this is a description of Satan. Does he literally have seven heads? No. Seven heads means he's got tons of authority. He's a world power. Ten horns, what does that mean? Does he have horns? No, he doesn't have horns. What it means is he's got a lot of military power at his disposal. Okay, does that make sense? And then the seven crowns means he is wielding great political influence in the world. So this is Satan then coming after this woman. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. I'm only going to tell you this because some people believe that when there was war in heaven, and you'll hear this quoted a lot, but I just want to show you where it came from. It's actually fairly tenuous. I mean, this is not a fact necessarily. It's just an interpretation. Some people say when Satan fell from heaven, he took a third of the angels with him. That's why. They understand this as the stars being angels, and he swept a third of them from the sky. Again, that, that's not concrete. I mean, nobody would, would go to the bank with that. But when you hear that Satan took a third of the angels when he fell, it comes from that verse. So he swept a third of the stars out of the sky. He stood in front of the woman about to give birth. So he was going to devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. That is in prophecy in Isaiah talking about the Messiah. This is talking about Jesus. He'll rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her where she might be taken care of for 
1,260 days. So who are these people? The woman and the dragon. The woman is, if you're a historicist, you're going to see this as a flashback in time. The woman is the church and the devil is the, is the devil, but in the form of the Roman Empire persecuting the church. If you are symbolic, you're going to understand this as Israel giving birth to Jesus. The woman is Israel. I mean, the prophecies, of, you know, harkens back to one that Joseph had about Israel. She's given birth to a child who's going to rule the nations. That's Jesus. You've got Satan there in the form of Herod who tries to kill the babies, doesn't he? Remember that? All the babies under two years old? This is Herod, Satan, trying to kill the babies. But he's not successful, is he? Thought they did crucified him on a cross, turns out he's snatched up to heaven. He's raised from the dead to sit at the right hand of God. This is a retelling of the gospel right there. So symbolic says, yep, that's pretty much telling you what happened back there. Futurists are going to say, actually, it is Israel uh, giving birth to Christ, but it's also forecasting something that's going to happen to Israel in the middle of the tribulation. Is basically that uh, the woman fleeing is Israel, and she's trying to escape the Antichrist. And so for the 1,260 days, that's three and a half years, and we're in the middle of Daniel's 70th week, all this is about the last three and a half years of the tribulation. What is going to happen is Satan and all his political power and all of his armies, remember the nukes, the Arabs and the Soviets, the Chinese army, they're all going to try to destroy Israel. Israel is going to have to flee to the southern part of the country for protection. And when they do, I'm going to read you some parts I didn't put on a screen. It says this. The woman, he says, the dragon saw that he'd been thrown down to the earth. He pursued the woman. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle. Now, John can't know this, but modern-day futurists say, well, duh, that's the USA. In other words, to rescue the woman, and uh, this is a futurist point of view, Given two wings of an eagle, she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she could be nourished for a time, times, and half a time. I forgot to tell you. Three and a half years, 42 months, 1,260 days, a time, times, and half a time. All those mean three and a half years. So for that three and a half years, she's going to be protected in the southern part of Israel from the political and military power. It says, the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. Now they're going to understand that is the war spreading out to the rest of the world. So futures are kind of unique in seeing this as happening to Israel in the end times. And then finally, the scene shifts to heaven immediately after this. Symbolic's going to say, you're about to find out in heaven what just happened on the earth. What just happened on the earth was... Jesus is born out of Israel. Satan, in the form of Herod, tries to kill him, thinks he did, but he's raised from the dead and overcomes evil. That's the gospel. Here's what it looked like in heaven, symbolic would say. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray, deceives everyone. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom, the three divine attributes, of, of our God. The accuser of our brothers, who accuses them before God day and night, has been hurled down. They overcame him, 
by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. So the symbolic view says the first six verses just went back and told you in symbolic terms Jesus overcoming through the grave and through the resurrection. This is what it looked like in heaven. Satan's trying to take over. He has a battle. He's hurled down. How's he hurled down? Because of the blood of the Lamb. What Jesus did on the earth echoed into heaven. And so evil is defeated in heaven. Satan is always pictured as a deceiver and an accuser. Think of the book of Job. He comes before God to accuse Job. He deceives people. He deceives people into sinning and then goes and accuses them. That's what Satan has done. And that's what he was doing. And so when Jesus dies on the cross and is raised from the dead, he defeated Satan. And this is what it looked like in heaven. God said, no more accusations, no more deception. You're going to be hurled to the earth. It's like Romans 8.1. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. What Christ did on the earth, raised from the dead, this is what he did in heaven. He, Satan is banished from heaven now. He's hurled down to the earth. Well, that's good news, bad news. Because it turns out when you hurl him down to the earth, he's ticked off. I mean, he's really angry. And so he is going to try to wreak havoc on the earth. The war in heaven, historicists say, though, it's really, uh, symbolic says, that's what happened in heaven when Jesus died on the cross and was raised from the dead. Historicists say, no, I still want to stick with this whole a historical flashback, and they see this as what happened in a, one of the emperors in about 361 who was trying to defeat Christianity with paganism. And he was battling against Christ, and he lost. His name was Julian the Apostate. I mean, he wasn't born the Apostate. The Christians called him that. Julian the Apostate, and his dying words were, O Galilean, you have conquered. And so they're going to understand this as kind of a historical flashback. Symbolic understands it's what literally happened in heaven. Futurists understand that in the middle of the tribulation, Satan is going to be unleashed on the world. No holds barred. And he's going to just, in the middle of the tribulation, he is going to just go wild on the earth. They see uh, this passage in Daniel 12.1, where it's talking about Michael fighting against Satan, protecting the people of God, they understand that that passage in Daniel is now coming true at the end of time because Satan really will be cast down on the earth and that he is then going to go attack the believers. He's going to attack Israel. He's going to attack the church. So the idea of Satan being the deceiver and being cast down war in heaven, again, it can either be in the future if you're a futurist. It's going to be in the past if you're a historicist. It's going to literally be something that big that happened in heaven during that time period. Okay? So let me sum up what we've done. Chapter 11, futurist. What's really happening in the middle of the tribulation? Chapter 12 is Satan being cast down. And the second half of the tribulation, the second three and a half years, is called the great tribulation because it gets even worse. And that's what we're about to head into, by the way, next week, is that great tribulation. Historicist, this is a momentous event with the Protestant Reformation. And symbolic view says this is the end of our struggle. This is forecasting when Jesus comes back and Satan is truly vanquished. So those are kind of what the views see in chapter 11 and 12. Question? Yes. Can this um, not be a flashback to the fall of man? Well, 
short answer, no one really sees it that way. I can understand how you might see it. It kind of has difficulties in other ways. I'm not really familiar with anybody that really uh, interprets this consistently in that way. Is the war a future event because they overcame Satan by the blood of the Lamb? Yeah, if you stop and think about it, symbolic point of view is going to say that happened in 33 AD. Satan is done. He's toast. He's defeated. Everything that's happening now is... And this is an interesting faith lesson. That understanding says Satan is not doing what he's doing now. He is not... uh, behind these forces because he can be victorious. He's behind these forces because he knows he's lost. In other words, we as Christians should live in confidence. He was defeated at the cross. It's just awaiting God's pleasure when God will eventually destroy him. Does that make sense? That's a really powerful idea. So they understand that that war in heaven, that happened back at the cross. He was defeated. He is defeated. He is roaming the earth, causing a lot of trouble right now, but he will be totally destroyed in the future. Futurists will want to put all of this into a future war. So there is a disagreement of when that happened. Or what, well, futurists don't disagree that Jesus defeated Satan at the cross. Don't misunderstand me. They just understand this prophecy is talking about a specific war in heaven. Everybody agrees Jesus defeated Satan on the cross. Okay, so the futurist view is that the first three and a half years of the tribulation is peace under the Antichrist, but everything looks really good. And the last three and a half years is the plagues and the wrath, etc. Is that correct? Yeah, peace might be too strong a word. He's friendly to the Jews at that time and builds the temple. But they do understand that there's some nuclear war, there's, there's some hostility going on. But the Antichrist sort of turns, switches betrays the Jews. So maybe not necessarily peace, but the Antichrist doesn't really go after uh, Israel until the second half of the tribulation. Um, In Revelation, does being sealed equate to once saved, always saved? Yeah, I'm trying to think, was that a Baptist that asked that, or was that, I'm just kidding you guys, I'm just joking. That's a really great question. What does being sealed mean? It's not exactly the same as that idea. but, it, but it's very reassuring nonetheless. The idea of being sealed is that in the midst of, it's sort of like Jesus' parable of the weeds and the wheat. He said, they're going to grow up together, but I can tell the weeds from the wheat. I know what, what the wheat is. This is sealing people saying, look, I know that you are following me. So it's not so much a guarantee that I'll make sure you always follow me. I mean, I'm just saying it's not necessarily speaking to that theological question. It is more just reassuring us that don't think that God has forgotten you. Don't think that God can't see you. Don't think that your difficult circumstances mean that God doesn't know where you are and hold you in his hands. The idea of sealing means is that nothing is able to obscure you from God and Satan is not able to overpower you. So you're probably thinking, well, then that means you'll go to heaven. Not necessarily. I mean, that's going to depend on another theological idea. So it's, it's similar in the sense that God is, is claiming ownership. It's not directly saying he's going to guarantee that you'll go to heaven even no matter what you do. I mean, it's just, it's kind of two different questions, but but I understand the point. Well, let me just sum up what's happened uh, here in this passage. Chapter 11, the two witnesses, really depends on when you think it's happening, isn't it? Historicist view, 
I mean, if you're a Protestant reformer and you think the Catholic Church are kind of the bad guys, which they most certainly did at that time, you can see how the witnesses would be those who are trying to speak against the Catholic Church. If you're a futurist, you'll understand the witnesses very, this is all literally happening on the world stage on your TV in a seven-year period of time. These are two people that really do preach and they really do get killed and they really do miraculously get raised. Symbolic view says, man, this is apocalyptic literature, guys. Don't take it so seriously. You know, it's, this has happened over and over. Those witnesses are you and me. And sometimes we Christians are killed by the forces of evil, but nothing can keep God from raising us from the dead. And then the various other visions there really kind of break down to when you think it's happening. One interesting that's going on idea, Satan is behind the forces that are arrayed against us. This is like a real life today. No matter what your view is, the reasons that people are trying to get you and me and Christians and the world is focused against the church, that's not random. As Paul says in Ephesians 6.12, we don't war against flesh and blood. We war against powers in the other realm. What's he saying? Exactly what Revelation is saying. Satan is real. He has lost he has been defeated by the blood of the Lamb. You will overcome. He cannot keep you from being faithful to God. In other words, he cannot stop you and say, no matter what you try to do, God, this person is going to hell and I own them. He doesn't own us anymore. He's lost. But he will try to do everything he can to your body. He'll try to deceive you if he can. He'll try to get you to, to do anything he can. That's what's going on now. The idea is Satan is behind the forces arrayed against us. It's not just world events. There are bigger powers happening. And, you know, Christians usually go one of two ways on this. They either, we either tend to then become oblivious to spiritual warfare. We think everything that's happening in the papers is just, oh, that's just the natural world. No, God says there's something more cosmic happening here. Or we get really fixated on demonic stuff, and we become very fearful of Satan. And God says, no, he's been defeated. Remember when Jesus said to his disciples, he said, you don't need to fear the one who can kill your body, and that's all he can do to you. He's talking about Satan. He said, Satan, bad things will happen to you, but take heart. That's all he can do. Because of the blood of the lamb, you are eternally secure. In other words, nothing can keep you from that. So my point is the idea of Satan being behind the forces, and that's a powerful message no matter how you see it that comes out of this, that God is in control, God is sealing his people. Whether you think it's playing out in the future, that's true. Whether you think it's playing out in the past, that's true. Or symbolic, that's true. Well, Satan decides, you know what? God's got a trinity. I need a trinity. Satan wants to be God, doesn't he? And so he says, I need a trinity. And so in our next lesson, we're going to introduce you to his two helpers called the Antichrist and the False Prophet. And boy, they really kick things into gear. So we'll meet the Antichrist next time, and we'll talk about some of the ideas of who it might be. You might bring your favorite candidate for the Antichrist as well. I'll see you next week.